0: No purchase necessary, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply, see website for details. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year.
1: How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor?
0: What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life
1: look like after church, after religion, after God? That's you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond.
0: With your host, Ryan Bell. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. This is episode 93. My guest today is Chris Stedman. Chris is a writer, speaker, and community organizer living in Minneapolis. His new book, Out Tomorrow from Broadleaf Books, is called IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. The IRL in the title refers to the internet shorthand for in real life in contrast to our online lives. But Chris thinks this designation is a mistake. Much of the time, Chris says, we don't think of our time on the internet as real, and therefore we don't approach it with the same critical analysis that we might a different kind of engagement. How much thought do you put into an activity that you don't think is real? Chris argues that while our lives online are different than other relational spaces, it's no less real. As such, he invites us to think deeply and critically about how we engage with the internet, how it is shaping us, and what it's telling us about what is real and what is important. A couple of weeks has gone by since we recorded this conversation, and Chris's book is due out tomorrow, October 20. The timing of the release of this conversation allows me to insert a note here about a piece that was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine this week, dated October 13, entitled The Problem of Free Speech in an Age of Disinformation. I highly recommend it. In the latter half of our conversation, I asked Chris about the problems facing our society from online disinformation and hate speech. I put the link to the article in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourself. As is germane to the topic of our conversation, I initially met Chris on the internet, but finally had a chance to meet him in person when he was the humanist chaplain at Yale when I spoke there in 2015. Since then, we've kept up online, on Twitter, and so forth, and it's a real privilege to share this conversation with you. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support for the show. I love these conversations and I love sharing them with you and hearing your reactions. So if you want to share your thoughts with me, please write to me at Ryan at lifeaftergod.org. If you're new to the show, it's important that you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of over 80 listeners who contribute anywhere from a dollar to fifty dollars a month to make it possible. A huge shout out to all of you who contribute or have contributed in the past. I want to especially thank my dear friend Nathan Watkins, who is an investor on the show. Thank you so much, all of you, for helping me keep this show going, especially now, during these challenging times. Some folks have understandably needed to take a step back, so if you're doing okay and you've been thinking about becoming a member for a while, I would be so grateful. All you need to do is visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod to set up a monthly recurring donation of anywhere from a dollar to as much as you think this podcast is worth. And also, and this is totally free, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show reach a higher profile. Okay, enough about all of that. Let's get to this conversation with Chris Stedman. Chris Stedman, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, man, it's such a pleasure.
1: Um, how, are, how are you? How are, how are things? <laughs> i'm good i'm good it's uh it's a beautiful day here in minnesota so i can't complain and uh i'm I'm really excited to be doing the show i feel like it's a long time in the making (laughs) it's true it's true
0: i i feel the same way um funny thing about you you mentioned minnesota real quick and i'll probably edit this out but maybe not (laughs) um i read an article in um ProPublica the other day that was talking about the effects of climate change and where sort of the sweet spot for agriculture I was doing that
1: same thing yeah
0: and pretty soon you guys are gonna be like in about 50 years you're gonna be the heartland
1: I know yeah it was uh, I was looking at that too and I I got I got here early yeah we got Year, I guess.
0: Yeah, I told my girlfriend, we should buy property, you know, but go finally, you know, in my adult life, maybe own a home one day. And we should, you know, go up there, w- w- Wisconsin, Minnesota, because, you know, by the time our, my kids in, would inherit it from me, you know, it would be like, you know, prime, <laughs>
1: prime real estate. Totally. And let, but let's be honest, you know, it, they're, they're projecting 50 years right now, but I, it's, I, I'm sure it'll be sooner than that. Right. Yeah. The way things are going.
0: The West yeah. coast will be inc- entirely uninhabitable in 20.
1: Yeah. Well, On
0: that note. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yay. Uh, you, you doing okay out there?
0: Yeah. We're hanging in, you know, it's uh, the, the, the skies in Pasadena have cleared. We have a fire that's really close to us. And by really close, I mean like 10 miles, um, sure. which is like certainly not close enough to threaten our safety, but the air has been horrible for two weeks. And just yesterday, I went and sat in my patio outside for the first time in two weeks. Um, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, and it was just you know I I was telling someone else that it it feels like you know the virus made the world much smaller in terms of my sort of inhabitable world. You know we couldn't go places. We decided not to go places, and but we could still go outside. In fact, it was encouraged you know go outside, take walks. And then the heat hit two weeks ago, and it was over 110 for three days here and we just stayed inside and then the smoke came and then the smoke came inside the house, you know, through the windows mm-hmm. and under the crack in the door. And, and, uh, and it felt like claustrophobia, you know, like all of these calamities were just closing in one tighter than yeah. the one before. But, uh, we have a little relief now. So, so that's good. Good, good I'm glad. Well, my first acquaintance with you came when you published your first book, and we're going to talk here in a few minutes about your your second book that's coming out in just a few weeks. But I want to go back before we talk about your new book um, to sort of your sort of the origin story, the the beginning of of Chris Stedman as a a public intellectual and as a, a writer, um, because it's so relevant to the subject of this podcast, Life After God, in which I often interview people who no one would know necessarily, except for their family and close friends, um, just ordinary folks who ran into the limits of their religious worldview and decided to make some kind of change or another, whether it's becoming an atheist or somewhere in between. Um, and in your first book, um, you talk about your sort of decision to, um, to step away from your, your upbringing. It was a pretty painful experience for you. Um, that book is called Faithiest. And I know probably many of our listeners have uh, lis- have read that book. Um, but in, in, just in case some people haven't heard of you or, or haven't heard of that book, um, tell us a little bit about your growing up experience and what, what it was like being in an evangelical context for you.
1: Yeah. So I think people are sometimes surprised, or at least this has been my experience among like Atheists and humanists and secular folks, because, um, you know, I actually so in my early childhood growing up, we were really, um, you know, what um, social scientists who and demographers who study um, religion in the United States, we, you know, we were what they call religiously unaffiliated. We were just nuns and mm-hmm. Um We weren't sort of explicitly secular or atheistic or anything, but we. Um, weren't religious either. You know, I always say that I didn't hear the word um, God in my household growing up, but I didn't hear the word atheist either. We just were sort of nothing. Yeah. Um, and um, but then when I was eleven, I had a a conversion and I became a an evangelical. And um, you know the the sort of quick and dirty <laughs> version of that story is that uh, about a year prior to converting, I started reading books like. Alex Haley's Roots and John Hershey's Hiroshima and Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. So I I kind of immersed myself in these works that not only increased my awareness of some of the greatest atrocities in the history of human civilization, but also told the stories of what it was like for people who experienced those things. And I felt like you know I'd learned about some of those events in school, but really they were just sort of presented as historical facts, as things that had happened, but um, they weren't sort of you know, I, I couldn't feel them in the same way that I did when I read those stories. And um, and reading those sort of filled me with this, Im- this immense kind of existential angst as much as, an, you know, a 10-year-old can feel existential angst. <laughs> um, and I, I just, you know, I found myself completely confounded um, by the fact that I lived in a world where people could be, and of course, you know, some of my naivete had to do with my own privileged you know, upbringing as a, a, a white cisgender man um, in a society where life is much easier and, and, and where the world sort of caters to the, the desires and worldviews of white cisgender men. So, um, you know, it was sort of an awakening um, of my own um, ignorance, but I, I found myself just um, completely uh, disturbed by the fact that people could be so inhumane toward one another. And, and I wanted to understand why. Um, I wanted to understand what it means to be human um, if this if being human encompasses this um, and and I felt like I didn't have the I, I didn't have a space where I could do that I didn't even really have the language to begin articulating those questions but I was invited a, a, around 11 to this non-denominational um, evangelical christian after school youth group. Um, in my town, I was enticed by the sort of allure of free pizza. Um, but, (laughs) but I, uh, you know, when I, when I got there, I found a community of people who were equally obsessed with these kinds of questions who wanted to understand, you know, what, um, what it means to be human, what our responsibility is when, in, in terms of the injustices that we see in the world, who wanted to try and make sense of those things. Um, and so even though, you know, the idea of God, um, the idea of God was like unfamiliar and and confusing. Um, I was like, you know, these are people, these are my people because they care about the things that I care about. Um, and, and you know, of course that they also, um, the, the particular community I converted into was, you know, extremely, um, anti-gay. And I, uh, this, this conversion coincided with my emerging recognition of my own gayness. And, um, you know, so it was a, a deeply sort of, it ended up being a deeply fraught experience for me. Um, but those, those questions, um, you know, who am I, how do I understand myself, the world around me? How do I engage with the world around me? What, how do I respond to injustice? Those are the questions that ultimately sort of drove me into religion and that have really, I think, guided my entire life ever since. Um, And and, um, even, even in the sort of, you know, I I look back on that community that I converted into and I see, you know, I see many deep problems and, and I also, you know, attribute it to a lot of challenges that I faced. Um, But I, I also, you know, I appreciate at the, at very minimum um, that it was a space that affirmed the importance of those questions that said, you know, those, those questions that you have, they're important questions. They matter. Um, and you're not, you're not wrong to care about them. So I do, I do appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Well, and listening to you tell that story again, you know, I can, you know, easily see the through line to, you know, what you're doing today. And hopefully by the end of this conversation, people will see that as well. And it, it really resonates for me. My, my background is a little different in that I was raised in a sort of fundamentalist, um, kind of an odd evangelical-ish religion um, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, so my sort of, you know, quest to become, you know, a Christian myself was really, you know, seeded by my my parents' and my grandparents' involvement in the sure. church, you know, unlike your sort of discovery as a young person yourself, on you know, basically on your own um but a lot of the things that drove me i think were were very similar i think i was a similarly um inquisitive um sort of thoughtful philosophical kid uh, like it sounds like you were
1: um so along the way not always thoughtful but <laughs> but definitely you know definitely introspective and of course you know what i sort of realized later is that you know it's not it's not as if my um sort of deep desire to make sense of injust- injustice was sort of purely altruistic, you know, on some level, some subconscious level, I understood that there was something about me that was also different that also put me mm. at risk of, of, um, alienation. And and so my desire to understand those things was also kind of self preservation. Although I didn't realize it at the time, ironic, the irony, right. was that it ended up sort of driving me into a community that made it that much harder at the time for mm. me to, uh, to accept myself and to find acceptance from others. But yeah, they um, didn't
0: really assist you in your quest in the end.
1: No, it didn't. I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I'm very fortunate because I spent several years really struggling with my sexual orientation once I had um, converted into this community. Um, and to the point where, you know, I sort of the irony is I became a Christian because I was trying to make sense of injustice and and find a sense of community and belonging. And instead, you know, struggling so immensely with my sexual orientation, I really retreated within myself and my own sort of, you know, my own suffering increased really significantly, but I was very fortunate because a number of years into that process, my mother sort of noticing something was amiss um, that I had gone from a very kind of gregarious outgoing child to someone very withdrawn and, and, um, morose uh, she found a journal that I was sort of hiding in the back of my closet um, and she read it and so she she read you know what I was struggling with and you know my mother was not a Christian she um, didn't really know sort of how to support me best in what I was struggling with and so she went to the phone book this you know will tell you a little bit about my my age but <laughs> she went to the phone book she called up local churches in the community. And because um, because we were in Minnesota, you know, the odds were not small that she was going to find a Lutheran church. And so she ended up calling a Lutheran church, talking to a minister there who was LGBT affirming. And she took me to speak with him the next day. Um, and that not only was um, exactly the, the right thing to do in that situation, because I needed, you know, I needed someone who could offer me another frame Um, within Christianity to begin sort of rethinking what I was struggling with. Um, But it also set me sort of on the path that ultimately, you know, I've I've gone down. So I I ended up becoming involved in Lutheran communities that were LGBT affirming. I found that kind of community of like-minded people who were interested in the same questions that I was, who also, you know, helped me come to terms with who I was and and embrace that. Um, But as a result, I ended up going to a Lutheran college to study religion, thinking that, you know, I might go into the ministry myself to kind of help people who were trying to make sense of their own identities and and the world around them, like Lutheran ministers, like the one my mom had brought me to had had helped me during critical moments. But it was there at a Lutheran college that I, you know, studied religion and was challenged by my religion professors, all of whom were Christian to really ask myself why I believed the things that I believed and, and why I had become a Christian in the first place. And through that process, I came to recognize that for me, it had been about the function um, more so than the theology. The theology had I'd kind of always taken, had to kind of, I, I felt like I took it on as a package deal. It was like, these are the, the questions that drive me. The people, the other people who are driven by these questions all sort of cite God as a part of why, um, why they care and how they make sense of it. And so even though that doesn't necessarily sort of make sense to me or resonate with my own experience, I'll, I'll, you know, sort of, obviously, you know, I'm the only one here who seems to have a question about it. So uh, I'll just kind of go along with it, but um, my professors, um, and and this is, it's been so fun and strange. Um, I'm, I'm now teaching in that same department. So I teach in the department of religion and philosophy at the same school that I, attended as an undergraduate hmm. and I'm teaching alongside many of the people who played this sort of pivotal role for me. Um, but, you know, I, I, so I'm eternally grateful that they um, not only sort of welcomed my questions, but but really challenged me to ask ones that even I was afraid to ask um, because I worried it would, it, you know, that that this sense of identity and belonging that I had found in Christianity would be threatened by those questions. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I guess my fear was right, but, um, hmm. but I, you know, I, uh, I, I'm grateful that I ended up in communities that, um, valued the pursuit of, of, you know, of knowledge, of understanding of truth, um, and, and encouraged me to follow that path, even, even if that path led me out of that same tradition.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I so can feel the, the pathos of what you're saying that it's like almost like multiple alienations, you know, like feeling alienated from yourself initially and confused by that. And then joining a community where you might find yourself and then feeling alienated from that community. And it's just, I I feel like so many people go through that experience of looking for that. And, and we'll come to this in the discussion about your new book, you know, understanding who, who am I and what's, what's real, what's authentic, what's worth putting my soul into, if I can use that word. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's so, um, it's so hard to find. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 50 now and I'm still, you know, I'm still finally trying to find uh, like my place. And yeah. in your, in your book, Faithiest, you, you talk about, you know, your work with interfaith youth core and your discovery of, of, interfaith communities as well and and also your discovery that some atheists uh, as you had recently I uh, sort of identified yourself um also didn't have that sense of community and and sort of earnest searching for truth that you were
1: were looking for either so that yeah was that another alienation along the way it was yeah it wasn't you know when I finally did find uh you know sort of my community, um, of, of humanists and atheists, people who really, you know, did share my worldview. Um, it was a struggle to recognize, you know, when I sort of recognized that, you know, even, even there, um, not, you know, we weren't all sort of driven by the same values. Um, it's actually, you know, it's been, it's, you know, you, you talk about being, um, you know, almost 50, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my thirties now and, um, you know, I've been doing this work for so long. um, And it's still amazing to me, all the new things I can learn about myself and my and my motivations. And um, so, you know, this year, um, at the beginning of the year, I I began um, dating someone who is uh, one year away from becoming an Episcopal priest, which has been, (laughs) um, it's funny, because when it when the relationship started, a bunch of my friends were like, oh, this is the least surprising thing ever. And I'm like, excuse me, actually, I've never dated a religious person before, if you can believe it. Um, literally every boyfriend I've ever had has been non-religious like me. Um, but I thought about it, um, you know, when we, because we, you know, we obviously, we have a, a lot of conversations about these things, he and I. Um, and it it's occurred to me that, um, you know, so many of the, the guys updated in the past have been non-religious like me, but they've been in that sort of nuns category, the N-O-N-E-S-S. They um, are not religious, but they don't particularly care one way or another. They haven't really thought about it a ton. Um, they were always, you know, supportive of what I what I do and and my interests, but they didn't, you know, in the same way that that evangelical community I converted into when I was younger, affirmed that these questions, they matter, they have a real sort of bearing on how we live in the world. Um, And and they, you know, they sort of shared my interest in those questions. That's, you know, that's a similarity that he and I have, even if we sort of have arrived at different working conclusions about them. Mm. Um, You know, he, he sees the questions as mattering in the same way that I do. And, and so ultimately, you know, that's why I've, not only found community among humanists and atheists and have found people who share a lot of my values there, but I also, as you say, have found community in interfaith spaces where, you know, not only can we learn from each other and and work to, you know, break down some of the stigmas that exist between our communities, but we can also surround ourselves with people who, um, you know, are going to challenge us, who are going to, um, you know, put new ways of seeing things to us and who also share something really important, which is a sense that, you know, these aren't just trivial questions. These things really do matter. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I have experienced alienation, as you say, um, but I've also found a great sense of, of belonging in, in both humanist spaces and interface spaces. And I've been grateful for that.
0: So I guess take us from those experiences and the subject of your first book to what led you to the subject of this new book?
1: Obviously, you know, we, as you said, there's sort of this first book and then the second book, the the new one that's coming out. And when it was announced, I I remember, you know, a few people being like, okay, I don't really follow, like, what's the link here between this book about atheism and interfaith dialogue and this book about the internet. But I really think our conversation today is is, um, sort of exactly what ultimately led me to to be interested in the subject of the second book, which is that, um, you know, my story um, of sort of leaving a religious institution and and kind of making my way out into this sort of um, uncharted territory or or at least sort of disorganized territory uh, of kind of being religiously unaffiliated, but still being interested in questions of meaning and purpose, um, which is also your story. You know, I think I, I started to recognize that, Um, you know, we're leaving these institutions, um, more and more people are leaving these religious institutions, but, um, we're, we're not sort of institutionless. Um, instead, many of us are sort of moving, we're migrating that work from, you know, the work that has kind of historically happened in churches. Uh, You know, the reason I ended up in a church was because I was sort of interested in that. We're moving that work, a lot of it to the internet. At least for me, you know, the internet is a huge part of where I have found, a sense of connection and community where I found other humanists Um, you know, you and I connected online. Mm. Um, uh, And I love trying to explain to my girlfriend how I know someone
0: that I'm talking about, (laughs) you know, she'll say, who is that? And I'm like, Oh, um, you know, and I'll say the person's name and, and Oh, how do you know them? I'm like, Oh, this is always the question. Like I I met them online. (laughs) I don't know through this weird, you know, journey
1: that we've both been on. And I think that, you know, because for so much of our lives, we have, at least I, and I think many others have viewed the internet as sort of like, not, not real life, or or at least sort of less real. It's this kind of like space where we go to share things about the life that we're actually living somewhere else. Even though we've, you know, if we actually look at our behavior, we've been very obviously like doing things that that really matter that are very real, forging meaningful connections, expressing ourselves, finding resources, connecting with other people all the, you know, all the things that, again, I, you know, I sort of found in church when I was younger, um, you know, it's it, it's very obvious that we've been doing those things online. Um, but I think, you know, just like, just like when I left religion, um, my needs, the, the needs that I was sort of meeting in religion didn't just disappear. Right. Mm. Um, I still had a need for a sense of belonging, for a sense of community and connection. Um, you know, I, I think just because, we sort of act as if or, or or have been told that the internet is sort of not not real life. It's not not exactly the same as, which it isn't the same exactly as other parts of our lives, but um, it's sort of less real or a space, you know, just because that's sort of the message that we've gotten doesn't mean that we don't bring those same needs to our digital lives. Um, and so over the course of, you know, the last four years, I I kind of decided to, see if that really was the case, if we really were kind of trying to meet these needs online. And and if so, sort of how we we're doing so, whether or not it's working, and what we can learn from that. And so in my mind, um, and I hope I hope that the connection sort of comes through to people who read the book, but in my mind, those things are very connected. You know, I've been working as a, I worked as a chaplain for the better part of a decade. and And so my job was to accompany people as they were exploring these big questions in their lives and mm-hmm. trying to make sense of them, not to give them answers, obviously, because mm-hmm. I definitely don't have those, but, um, but, you know, to, to help them carve out space in their lives for those questions. And I think we need to, at least I've felt this need um, to carve out space in my digital life to like step back and actually ask myself, you know, in what ways am I meeting those needs online? And And what does that sort of reveal about, about those needs that I have? Mm. Um, So, and I think it's, you know, what I learned is that the internet um, presents immense challenges, um, but also so many opportunities to think about those things, about what it means to be a person um, and, and to be a person in a context and all of those kinds of things.
0: Just listening to you talk, a story came to mind that uh, I haven't thought about it in a very long time, which is my departure from high school on, on my way to, to college. And I had gone, I was in a very fundamentalist family, um, but it felt positive to me. It, it didn't feel oppressive at all. And I was very excited to be going to a Christian college, a Seventh-day Adventist college up in Central California. And um, I was at a public high school where I was constantly, you know, a misfit for everything that was happening there. Whether it was Sabbath observance that interrupted my ability to participate mm-hmm. in, you know, traditional coming of age events like prom or football games, um, yeah, I was really happy to be going to a, a Christian college. And my my grandfather pulled me aside on more than one occasion and said, "Just remember that you'll." that your experience there will be whatever you bring to it, like whatever you decide for it to be like, don't think that just because you're going to a Christian college, everyone's going to share your values. Mm -hmm. Um, And sure enough, I mean, he, he was very right. And, and I, you know, and I don't necessarily think I had the optimal experience of that college. I think I was, you know, terribly confused about a lot of things which shaped my experience of those couple of years. But but it's absolutely true that that it wasn't so much the space i was in as the person i was coming into that space and what i was looking for and and i found in very very you know in many ways i found what i was looking for and mm. i feel like you know when i read your book that the internet is is very and anything is actually that way like if you go on if you go on tinder or or grinder or you go on uh you know nextdoor app or Facebook, or you go out into your neighborhood, you know, in sort of, in, as we say, in real life, which we'll hopefully talk about a little bit more, <laughs> um, you'd still find what you're looking for, right? Like if you want to find a group of people to get drunk with every night, they're there, you can find them. Um, if you want to find a book club to discuss issues with, you know, people, um, you'll find that. And yeah. so it, it seems to me that anytime a new technology comes along, whether it's radio, television, um video, um you know, the cable news cable networks that exploded our television dial to hundreds of channels. There are yeah. always these sort of doom and gloom um predictions that it's going to destroy our way of life as it's always been and we seem to find a way to adapt to it. Um, yeah, is that your experience yeah, I mean, of the internet as well? And what you your research that you did was that it's a, a more like what we do with what we have rather no. than the thing itself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think so. It's it's kind of both and right. Like so, there's there's always been alarmists at any sort of new technological innovation. I mean, you know, there were um, there was all kinds of doom and gloom when the printing press came to be, but um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there's not you know, it, every change, every sort of immense change like this, there is a swirl of loss and gain, you know, I mean, yes, the printing press enabled, you know, an explosion of knowledge, um, the spread of, you know, the, you know, and, and yet it had a, a real, there were real co- in, impacts on oral traditions and, and there was loss there, right? right? Like the way that knowledge is, is transferred from person to person versus from text to person. Um, and, and, you know, I, and, and the book tries to sort of be really honest about the fact that, you know, we're in this immense transitional moment culturally from a pre-digital age to a digital one. And that there's, there, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's also a lot of loss. And, and there are also immense challenges that we face, you know, that a lot of the end of the book um, sort of deals with the fact that the platforms that we use now to connect with others, to express ourselves, to understand ourselves better are driven first and foremost by the demands of profit. Um, And so, you know, they're not, Mm -hmm. they don't have an interest about what kind of experience we're having online. They don't care if it's an experience that is connective, that helps us forge meaningful connections and understand ourselves better. As long as we are, are using it, you know, that's sort of all they care about. Um, And, there was, I, I, I cite in the book, this longitudinal, I think it was an eight year longitudinal study out of BYU that found that, um, you know, that sort of challenges the, the common um, thinking right now, which is that more time online makes you lonelier, you know, more narcissistic, um, all the, you know, all the sort of doom and gloom that we see about the Internet. Um, And so this, this study suggested that two people could spend the same exact amount of time online, but have radically different experiences, um, and that it has sort of everything to do with how you're using the internet. So if you're sort of, uh, and and in the book, I talk about the difference between deep play and shallow play. Mm -hmm. Deep play is sort of creative, experimental, connective, It, it gives you it's like the imagination games of my childhood, it gives you opportunities to experiment with identity to connect with others shallow play is like a slot machine. You know, you're sort of driven by impulse. (laughs) You you keep coming back, chasing that high, that dopamine Um, hit. Exactly. And we've all had that experience online driven by the algorithm. um, You know, but I, I I was doing plenty of doom scrolling, scrolling the other night um, when, you know, when RBG died Um, and, you know, and so the, the platform's definitely uh, there is um, it's, it's easier to drive, you know, sort of um, use by fear, by anger. Um, But someone who is using the internet sort of intentionally who is, um, you know, being mindful about it can have, can spend the same amount of time online and not, you know, have an increase in anxiety. Um, And in in fact, can, it can be a a space for deep play for um, that, that kind of connective reflective play. Um, But that's, that's harder. I mean, it's like climate change, right? Like we Mm. individual changes can make a big difference in our lives, but you know, we also need systemic change. Um, You know, it it doesn't matter how much I recycle if these major corporations that account for the majority of pollution, you know, of of pollution are, aren't checked by the system. Um, And so as much as, and, and I, I think we can, I think we have real, we have real power to be able to have an impact on what our experience is like online Um, right now individually by making sort of particular choices and by trying to be intentional and mindful, but the odds are kind of stacked against us until these platforms um, change and, and, um, you know, under capitalism, they are, they are first and foremost going to prioritize what makes themselves money. And uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: I'm thinking, I mean, the whole, a few minutes ago as you started into this sort of line of reasoning which i really appreciate i i, I thought of, again of marshall McLuhan's book the medium is the message and the way that it's the medium isn't passive it it does shape the discourse um mm-hmm. and it really requires what i hear you saying and you know l- like to get your take on this that what what really is required of us is that we engage thoughtfully with whatever we do um, so if you just, you know, going back several generations to a, a, a new technology like television, if you just plop down in front of it and turn on, I don't know, one of the broadcast network news news channels like, you know, NBC, and you watch the nightly news every night for a year, you know, you're going to have a particular view of what's going mm-hmm. on in the world. Um, exactly. It, it may even be partly true or even all, all true, but it's not all the truth. You know, it's only the right. truth that they...
1: It's not neutral, even, you know, right? every, you know, there is no such thing as, as neutral journalism because even the, the stories that you choose to tell or not tell are, you know, they reflect certain values, what you see as being noteworthy and important.
0: Right, exactly. And I think, um, and then, you know, in terms of the medium, you know, television kind of is a passive exercise where, you know, reading is a little bit more active and, um, and and so I think just being aware that this is what's shaping us and I know Noam Chomsky's helped me think about this a lot and the way that propaganda works and and how we can consume things, but to be intentional about what we're consuming and recognize the limitations of it and and where it may not give you the whole picture. Um I think is really helpful. And I, you know, I've I've used social media really differently than I used to use it. Um, I primarily use Twitter to keep up with the world, you know, as opposed to argue about things. Although I do occasionally <laughs> these days get drawn into an <laughs> argument. Um, yeah. But I've also, as I've gotten older, started thinking about how I use my time. I mean, that's the kind of, kind of thing that you tend to think of as you get older that, you know, my, my time is limited and I can't engage with every troll nor, nor do I want right. to. And, and, And I would rather spend my time, um, you know, rather than arguing just as an example, rather than arguing endlessly with someone who doesn't think racism is systemic in our society, I'd rather spend my time engaging with people who are fighting systemic racism and doing really creative, constructive things to undermine that worldview and create a new world. Um, You know, and occasionally I might wade into that water of if I feel a person's open or you know, receptive, but man, life's too short to.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, so that, that is, I mean, the, the reason that people have a often have a a kind of dissatisfying experience online is kind of twofold. One, um, they bring with it the expectations of other parts of their lives. So they kind of expect it to, to function exactly like every other part of their lives. Um, and, and I think many of us have felt that this year in particular, um, mm-hmm. when, you know, in the pandemic, we've had to sort of move big pieces of our lives on online. And, you know, if we expect it to sort of function exactly the same as other parts of our lives, we'll be disappointed. But if we look at it as providing, as, as you know, being a, a shift that certainly includes loss, but also enables things that weren't possible before, like you and I can have a conversation right now um, in a way that we couldn't you know, before then I think yeah. that that helps. But, but I also think the time piece is, you know, one of the biggest parts of it because, you know, the, the apps that, um, have the sort of, the, you know, there, there was a study that moment did, um, and they, they sort of ranked the apps that people had the most negative views of. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with whether or not people feel like they've sort of been sucked in and wasted their time as a mm. result. Um, and it does have so much to do with, um the fact that our time feels precious. And so, you know, if we can use it in ways that feel um, life-giving to use a term that um, is a holdover from my days in Christianity.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also I think poignant though.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I know that you and I share this, but I was deeply shaped by reading Martin Hagelin's book, This Life. Um, You know, I mean, it was, it was one of those books that um, articulated a lot of what I already felt, but also, um, gave me, you know, so much, so much in terms of helping me be able to articulate sort of why I value certain things, why they matter to me. Same. And and time is a big piece of it. Um, it's exactly as you were saying about, you know, you, as you get older, you recognize that your time is really, it's, it's one of the most important things that you have. It's one of the most valuable things you have and how you spend it, um, really matters. And I think, you know, because we are not encouraged, certainly not by the platforms themselves and also kind of by the discourse or the narrative that the internet is not real or is less real, you know, we're not encouraged to be sort of reflective on our digital lives. I mean, we all spend a ton of time thinking about them, but but we don't, um, we're not encouraged to sort of see them as, as being, um, you know, spaces where we can actually Spend meaningful time, even though we we constantly are. Um, mm-hmm. And so that you know that shift in my sort of approach to my digital life has made a big difference um, in in trying to be more aware of what needs I'm actually trying to meet when I log on, um, rather than having it be this thing that's sort of seamlessly integrated into every part of my life. <laughs> and and it does you know it goes back to exactly what you were saying. Um, so when I when I decided I wanted to try to better understand um, how we're using the Internet to explore these sort of age old questions of what it means to be human, um, which is not actually is not the book that I thought I was going to write when I first sort of was thinking about writing a book and really was a result of, of kind of two things, um, which, you know, from reading the book, um, one, these kind of personal experiences I had where I was going through these immense changes in my life. But but was kind of continuing to post online um, as if it was sort of business as usual. And I was feeling this kind of split. I was feeling like there are certain things that I can't bring to my digital life and I want to understand why. But then I was also working with these sociologists at the University of Minnesota, and one has now moved to UMass Boston to study the religiously unaffiliated and was feeling more and more like a lot of the work that has happened in religious spaces historically is now happening online. And so when I decided I wanted to try and understand this better, sort of how we use the internet to explore these fundamental questions about what it means to be human, I I actually started that search um, by going to a map library, which again you know, um, and and I think you know I had a few people be like, well, why there? Why maps? Um, part of it is because I've always loved maps. Oh, I mean, yeah. I was a geography nerd as a kid, but it's also because um, it's you know sort of exactly like you were saying we. Just as when I was a kid, I looked at maps and I saw them as these sort of neutral or artless representations of, of a space, um, you know, that were literally just documenting um, a space, like you know, the a, a news channel's just telling the news. Um, you know, I think I didn't realize, or I know I didn't realize, that actually, you know, maps represent the interests of of power, um, mm-hmm. the people who, who sort of decide what matters, um, what's worth representing, you know, a map is a, is a a process of sort of, um, of representation and, and subtraction. You have to sort of decide what you're going to show on the map and what you're not, because it can't be the size of the territory it's trying to depict, or it would, or it can't show every detail on the territory because it would be the size of the territory. Um, and that those decisions aren't just sort of neutral choices. They, they represent various interests and similarly, you know, online. I think sometimes we feel like we're just logging on and 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 you know using the internet, but actually, the internet that we're using is one that's shaped by particular interests and that moves us in certain directions and, and doesn't move us in others. And until we, you know, are sort of more aware of that stuff and, and sort of more aware of what what we're trying to do online and what needs we're trying to meet, I think we will find ourselves having more of those feelings, um, you know, after time online that the time. Time has been not well spent. Um, it's not moving us in the direction of feeling more real, feeling more fully human, hmm. uh, and is instead moving us in, in, in directions that we don't always like, um, or at least that's been my experience. But I don't think that the, the, the outcome is set. Um, I, think we have, hmm. I think we have some agency. Um, we, can, we can have a say in the internet that we have, both on an individual level and, and again on a systemic level.
0: Yeah. And to pick up on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, you used the analogy of recycling, which is one I often use as well. I just read the other day that, you know, this article that said, you know, for a long time now, waste management companies have just been burning our recycling along with all the rest (laughs) of the trash, you know, (laughs) just like, Oh, my God. Um, So the the question I wanted to ask you was about sort of Individual versus collective solutions, and you know, you know, and rightly so. Like a lot of your book is talking about what what I can do as a reader of your book to have a better experience online, to really understand myself and my own impulses and my own desires, and why I'm behaving the way I am, and how I might think differently about my online life as a real life um, as something that I bring my whole real self to. But I also wonder about the role society has to play in these platforms, you know I, I'm sure you know we all remember that article it was on in, in multiple platforms, but I remember one especially on on in the New York Times about um, the YouTube algorithm and how it radicalizes mm-hmm. people to extreme right wing ideologies. You start with, you know, like um, well, Not to name Sam Harris. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Let's just (laughs) get. You start with Sam Harris because you're interested in like I don't know meditation or or uh, you know you're having a struggle with religion and you you heard that this guy knew something about uh, religion and its role in society and so you listen to that and the next thing you hear is Joe Rogan and then it's Jordan Peterson and the next thing you know it's Mike Cernovich or or whatever and off you go into um, the far right and and. And then, you know, along with that comes the questions about free speech and censorship and private corporations having such a control. And we've talked a little bit, of, but you've talked a little bit about capitalism already, um, that how dangerous it is to have private corporations that aren't beholden to the public interest uh, in control of so, so much of our mouthpieces, the the sources of our information Um and, and of course, it, it brings to mind questions around cancel culture as well, like the way that certain voices uh, are removed from certain platforms because they are so toxic. And these corporations, even though they are in the pursuit of profit, have determined that either in the service of public interest or maybe in service of their profit, that certain people are not um, allowed to be on these platforms anymore. Do you have any sense of like where we're headed in terms of... Um, a completely open and free society where anything can be posted at any time on any platform, whether it's blatant antisemitism or, or racism um, and the role of sort of moderating these forums and how complicated that seems to me.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you may remember, I know you do that a few years ago, I I got some shit for basically, you know, talking about that, about the the sort of gateways to the alt-right. Yeah. through the atheist community online, which is a problem that I certainly am, am not the only person to recognize, nor the first. Um, and and there are a lot of people who have been doing a lot more about it, but I felt a responsibility to say something given my yeah you know, my sort of position in the community, um, especially as a white cisgender man. Um, and, you know, and it's something that I think a lot of people in the community either didn't want to acknowledge or didn't have to acknowledge, um, you know, for years I got, Um, some really vicious homophobia from fellow atheists that Mm. I think a lot of people just couldn't believe that would actually happen. Um, They they didn't really believe that that was true. Um, Anyway, that's a little bit of a a tangent, but, uh, you know, I think... Um, in some ways, I think part of what drew me to writing this book is the same, a lot of what drew me to writing Faithist, which is that, um, you know, I, I had sort of the best and the worst experiences with religion. I had experiences of immense alienation experiences that caused me to, you know, that, that did sort of immense damage to my sense of self. Um, and, but I also had experiences of finding communities of of immense welcoming, um, you know, those, those progressive yeah. Lutheran communities I moved into, really were my safe space in high school when I came out, um, you know, I was, I came out in a large high school um, where there were not other visibly LGBT people and experienced a lot of harassment and, and targeted, um, you know, uh, bullying as a result of that. And and then I would go to these churches and I would find these, you know, I would have this experience of immense acceptance and welcoming. And so, you know, I felt like I had seen sort of the best and the worst of religion and, and that that gave me, a, you know, a, a way to approach it um, sort of recognizing both it's, you know, the, the, the very real challenges that living in a religiously pluralistic society alongside um, people who have, you know, very anti-pluralistic mindsets um, present. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think, I think it's hard for me to write about anything unless I sort of am, am equally sort of in love and and terrified by it. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. and I think the internet um, functions in that way for me. I mean, I think some of the greatest, most connective experiences I've had have come through my digital life and, and some of the worst you know experiences have as well. And so you know, I'm, I'm not when it comes to sort of cultural criticism on the internet, there, there tend to be these two really broad ca- categories, the apocalyptics and the utopians, you know, the people who say that the internet is is full of promise and, and it's going to make us, you know more effective um, or more efficient better versions of ourselves, um, superhumans, um, you know, transhumanist, um, views. And then there's, you know, the, the sort of apocalyptics who are all doom and gloom about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I started this project, um, (laughs) much like I think I, I sort of started with religion when I became an atheist, I started, you know, much more kind of, at least sympathetic to the doom and gloom perspective, um, and have kind of landed more in the middle of saying, you know, there are huge challenges, but also huge opportunities here. It's it's about sort of the choices that we make, both individually and collectively. Which I'll I'll kind of come back to that in a second. But um, but I've also um, come to feel that it's not just about being sort of utilitarian about it. Um, I also think that the the newness of our digital lives, the fact that it's such a new a new thing um, in the sort of scope of human history um presents an opportunity for us to a unique opportunity for us to reapproach these age-old questions and and do them in new ways you know i opened the book talking about a drag show and and going on amateur night when (laughs) drag performers are are sort of just dipping their toes in the water and on amateur night you see people trying all kinds of different things that that don't work (laughs) um you know and and yet you also see in that sort of you know, in trying to do something new, you see people learning about themselves, you know, sort of trying things that, um, that, you know, someone who is maybe a more seasoned performer wouldn't try um, thinking less about sort of how do I do this? Well, and more about what am I trying to say? What, Mm. what are sort of things that are driving me into this? And I think, you know, in online, we're all amateurs, right? We're all sort of trying to do something that we're not good at yet. But in that process, we have an opportunity to you know, try new things, new ways of being new ways of belonging. And so, you know, and, and, and I also think to sort of come back to this collective versus individual question, you know, part of why I write, you know, my, my first book also takes a sort of more individual approach to religious difference to say, like, yes, there are these sort of immense cultural factors when it comes to religious difference that makes it really hard to navigate. But here are choices we can sort of make on an individual level mm-hmm. that will, you know, sort of, have a an effect you know uh on the sort of broader issues and i think yeah you know, so i do think we have a lot of power as individuals i think all sort of social movements start on an individual level um but i also think that the challenges that we face when it, whether it comes to religion you know sort of open internet stuff like that are are so broad mm-hmm. that it can feel absolutely overwhelming to know what to do um i can't do anything um as an individual about you know some so much of climate change, but I can make choices on an individual level. And and some of it's just about, you know, making me feel o- okay enough to keep going, <laughs> you know, right. which matters. Um, it does matter. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's, um, the, if, if enough of us start sort of taking a more mindful approach to the internet, that's gonna, that's going to have, I think, a huge effect on the kind of internet that we have, um, and, you know, you know me um, politically, you know, I'm a, I'm a democratic socialist um, and I, you know, I believe that um, collectively, you know, we, you know, that, that change has to happen on a systemic level, but that that sort of starts, um, you know, I, I think a lot more is accomplished in local politics than in, you know, sort of national politics. Yes, um, And, and so, you know, I think we can start where we are, start trying to kind of, foster a more mindful internet um where we are in our communities with our friends with our neighbors um with the people that we engage with online and uh, you know i'm not some sort of wide-eyed optimist um especially not not this year (laughs) um (laughs) yeah i don't think that if we all just make a change then that will magically fix everything you know i i think we we are you know a lot of this change is going to come through you know legal um avenues but but I also think that we're not we're not powerless, and and that we can you know we can make change where we are. So,
0: no, that's helpful. Um, yeah, I I don't have no idea where this is going. You know, whether we collectively decide, as you know, in a democratic way, that certain voices are just simply too toxic to tolerate. You know, you know, sort of as Germans have made illegal the sig hail, you know, because of yeah, uh, obvious mean, reasons or whether we just sort of say it's a free for all, you know, choose, you know, choose who you listen to. <laughs> I, I have yeah, no idea. I
1: mean, the thing is, like, there is this false dichotomy. And I know, you know, this, you know, between sort of this, this idea that free speech means kind of like, all anything can be said with no sort of consequences whatsoever. Um, and, you know, there are consequences to, what people say, and sometimes those consequences include not having action, you know, access to various platforms. I remember when I was a uh, directing the humanist community at Yale, um, uh, the conservative group on campus um, decided to invite ayan Hearsi Ali mm. to speak on campus, and the student groups, um, like I think thirty or forty student groups, decided to come together and put their names all on a letter. Um, Sort of decrying that decision, not even asking, you know, for her to be deplatformed, but they they sort of wanted to say, you know, we we have real concerns about this. We'd like to um, see another voice um, sort of give, be able to give a response or something like that. Right. Um, and I just you probably remember when this happened, yeah. and the whole world swarmed on these students, and and in particular our students with the atheist and humanist group who made their own choice to sign on to that letter. They didn't even tell me until after they'd already done it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had nothing to do with that at all, but they sort of, you know, the in particular folks really focused on our students for doing that, even though the efforts um, among our student group were in fact led by ex Muslim students themselves, mm. which just, you know, it shows that people, you know, can get this little bit out of context, know nothing about what's going on and decide that their opinion is, matters most. But, right. you know, I think that's a that's a, a great example of, you know, Yale, Yale, um, speaking at Yale is not this sort of right that right. anyone can have. Like yes. students can say, we don't want our money going to support this speaker. We, you know, and and likewise, you know, the internet is not this sort of, you um, just free for all or i mean it functions that way but it's a you know it is something that we collectively sort of are building together yes these private companies sort of own these platforms and and set the the conventions and the norms but you know the internet is like any society any community it's something that's collaboratively built and you know we not only have the right to say you know these voices are not voices that um that you know, contribute to the public good. And in fact, harm, um, you know, have very real material harm that they cause. Um, but I think we have a responsibility, um, to moderate ourselves, you know, to say this is the kind of internet that we want, or this is not the kind of, and so, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's an immensely complicated thing. What I'm saying right now is like not a solution to, to that question, but, this idea that it's like simply a matter of free speech. And if you ever sort of suggest that somebody's speech is is harmful, is reckless, is dangerous. Your anti-free speech is just, it's such a, it's such a um, miscasting of, of what Mm -hmm. free speech actually means.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I just, yeah, we've the time has just flown by, and there's so much yes, more sir. we could talk. No, not at all. There's so much more we could talk about, and maybe maybe we can do that in the in the future. I would love to come back and kind of go deeper on some of the things that you you talk about. Um, you referenced some of my favorite philosophers, um, one being Charles Taylor, and you know his notion of the sources of the self. And we, I, I would love to talk more about how. Um, the way how how media in general and then the sort of the advent of social media is further um, that furthering that process of of us sort of understanding who we are and and the fragmentation within ourselves or 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 maybe some cohesion you know so anyway that's a fascinating subject to me and yeah well and and
1: i think you know and i i'll i'll keep this very succinct because i know we're running we're up at the end of time here but Um, you know, one of the things that the internet and sort of reflecting more on my digital life has, has revealed to me, which, you know, I, you know, I write in the book, like, I think one of the, uh, both the biggest challenges and biggest opportunities that social media presents is that we've always been these selves sort of partitioned into different, um, selves, right? Like the person I am on this podcast is not the same person I am with my boyfriend, with my mom, um, you know, Mm -hmm. online, and, and, and it's not as if these are sort of any one of these selves is more real than the other or you know that they're false it's you know we've always been a kind of composite of selves um, The challenge of the internet is that you know when we're posting on social media we have to be a self that is somehow coherent to all of these different kind of audiences that we've always had um, mm. future co-workers, colleagues, parents, etc and and you know that's sort of impossible um, and so the internet reveals that we've always been these sort of fragmented selves, or we've always been, you know, a self divided. Um, And we can either embrace that, um, which I think the internet presents an opportunity to do so, or we can be at war with ourselves, which I think we often feel like we are. Mm. Um, But yeah, I agree. That's definitely something we could dive into um, more in depth at a future date, I'd love to do that.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is IRL in real life finding realness, meaning, and belonging in our digital lives. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found Chris's story helpful in understanding how we are each reaching for a deeper sense of identity in multiple ways and in multiple dimensions. You're listening to a podcast, so I'm going to assume that you spend at least some of your time online Perhaps you're minimally involved, sharing a few things on Facebook and commenting on a few friends' posts. Or maybe you're maximally involved on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and whatever else is out there. The biggest takeaway for me, though, after reading Chris's book, is that our online lives are real life. It's a different form of life, but it's still my life. And the time I spend and the way I spend that time affects me and others just as the time I spend in other ways. I'm trying to be more aware of how I use the internet and how the internet may be using me. And I hope maybe some of these thoughts will provoke similar feelings for you. I highly recommend Chris's book, so please go out, buy it, and read it. The links are in the show notes wherever you're listening to this. All you have to do is look in the notes and click on the link, and it'll take you to a a place where you can buy his book. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to the show. Next time I'll be sharing a conversation that I had with Victoria De La Torre and Margaret Downey. We talk about Secular Day of the Dead, which they co-created. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast.